0: Welcome to the Center Church, Dubai. We are a church built and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ours is the story of a faithful God who saved imperfect people by His grace, united them by the love of Christ, and sent them out to bring many more to Him. Thanks for joining us. Today's scripture reading is taken from Revelations Chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Revelations 2, 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of God.
1: Not sure if you've heard of, a, of an evangelist who woke up in the middle of the night, he heard a couple of noises beneath his bed and that disturbed him. And at one point he jumped up and looked under because his bed began shaking. So he thought there was a thief and he looked under and he realized there was nobody there. And when he realized that, he was pretty comforted because he said, Oh, it's only you and he went back to sleep. Now that's not a rare thing to happen. It's a pretty rare thing to happen. I think a lot of us don't get woken up like that by Satan in the night, but sometimes when you think about it, you wonder why Satan would shake things up, especially if you're already in bed with the enemy. If you already are buddies with him, and over time have got a few pet demons in your life, you refuse to bring your life into true lordship, then we don't even realize we're behind enemy lines. We don't even realize at some point in time that we actually begin sounding like demons, not in terms of a voice and, and, and not in terms of doing some crazy stuff like screaming in the middle of the night, but we have a certain language and a mindset that scripture warns us about. I'll give you an example of what that might be like, something that you should be familiar with. So if you've been long enough, long enough in Christian circles, then you should be familiar with the topic of lordship because it's brought, brought up every now and then, isn't it? Constantly, what we desire to do, but where we always lack and we have a way of dealing with that when i think of my own life and think of people uh, who i serve and who care for me that seems to be something that that is progressive in some sense but something in your heart doesn't completely sit at rest so you could ask questions like so shouldn't god actually be deciding how you spend your time shouldn't god actually be deciding what you do with your ambitions and your money and we go on and on with that and at some point you beat that topic to death, and there's never joy when those topics are brought up. I don't know if you've realized this in your Bible study groups, so or when you talk with people, it's never a joyful discussion. It gets a little depressing at some point. And quite often, you can catch people talking about it after a study or before a session, and they would, you can hear them actually say to one another, saying, we've heard this before, really nothing new, isn't it? We've heard this for so many years. Uh, we know what the truth is as well. And they hang their heads low, they don't say anything about it. Very rarely would you hear someone say, I can't live like that anymore. I just can't. I have made some choices and that's how I'm going to live. That's pretty rare, isn't it? And so you just have a way of dealing with this and you know what needs to be done. It's not like we don't know, we know specifically what our convictions may be whether it's not stashing money and handing over control to God, whether it's waking up earlier, whether it's getting over your addiction to social media, whether it's your love to seek man's honor, whatever it is, we know our convictions and we know what our choices are. And there comes a point when we say, okay, let's do something about this. Let's discuss this. And people really don't like that discussion. It's almost like when you hear demons speak in Mark 8, when, when they approach Jesus, they say, why have you come to torture us before the appointed time? We know what it's like, maybe, you know, we know what the end is like, but we will press on. That's not a good place to be in at all. In other words, what we probably are looking for is some sort of lordship, which is a little grave, which is not really biblical, some sort of middle ground. And it's become a norm, actually, in Christian circles, which is pretty worrying for me and for all of us, that we accept those kind of decisions, saying this is what we need to do, but we don't. We don't feel that sense of urgency. And I think that's because one big reason is because what we live in, what we're surrounded by, a a compromising culture, keeps seeping in through the walls of the church. You keep borrowing those values, you live like that on the outside, and you import those choices and those thoughts into the body of Christ as well. And this morning, when you look at a church like this, the one that you read about in Pergamum, and he says, he commends them in the beginning for being faithful, if not all of them, at least a lot of them. And they were in a place where it says Satan lived, Satan had his throne. And so that's, that's what we want to look at. And how was this church faithful? What was the environment like? And how do we overcome this compromising heart, this heart that is so prone, prone to wander from lordship? And so when you look at Pergamum this morning, uh, we've moved through, if you recall, Ephesus and Smyrna. We're actually moving upward north. Uh, and then we will start going inward to the other four churches later. Now, if you travel back in time and if you visited this place, you actually might be pretty enamored. You might want to take a lot of pictures. There were huge sculptures, um, statues. Uh, this was a city that buzzed with a lot of business and tourist activity. This is, in fact, the Roman capital uh, for the province of Asia at that point in time. And so, all that must have looked like the city was thriving. But we have a theme in Revelation constantly, isn't and I called this out week before last as well, that things are not what they seem. So for example, just in the previous two letters to the churches, you may have noticed that Ephesus looked like a church that was thriving with activity. So many good deeds, but they were at at the brink of being shut down. If you do not repent, I don't need this church anymore. And last time you looked at a church, Smyrna, that almost looked like things were going sideways for them. But God says, I see your poverty, but you are rich. And it looks like you're losing, but that's actually the way to faithfulness, even to the point of death. And so now you have Pergamum, and when it looks like a city that's doing well, the words that we hear are pretty different. So look at verse 12, which says, The angel of the church at Pergamum, to the angel of the church, thus says the Lord, or these are the words of the one. Now, every letter begins with those words, and I reminded us that John is using language that is very familiar to the readers at that point in time. This was language that a king used when he passed an edict. So, for example, uh, these are the words of Cyrus, the king of Persia. You'll see that in in 1 Chronicles 36, 2 Chronicles 36. And you'll see that that language, if you were there as a listener at that church at that point in time, it wasn't just a mere declaration. This is coming from whom? This is coming from the king of kings. This is coming from the alpha and the omega. This is coming from the real sovereign king who is seated. And what does he tell them specifically? These are the words of the one who holds the double-edged sword. Now, if you heard it listening at that point in time, if you were there in that church, it wasn't just an analogy. It wasn't just Uh, words that you thought had some biblical reference, but it it was very relevant to you because this was a time when Rome had actually declared what is famous in history called the Us Gladi. In other words, the, the, the way we understand it is the right of the throne, the right of the sword, the right of the sword. In other words, every emperor was given, was empowered, where in his province he had the choice to go ahead and kill people, capital punishment. He'd need to go up the chain. And so that's the environment that the church was in. There was the double-edged sword that the Romans uh, would proudly often show off. And the Christians saw that as a clear threat because if you didn't bow down to Caesar, then the emperor had a choice to actually do away with you. So That's the setting in which this church hears these words. And when you hear these words, just like the previous churches, we see a description of christ in chapter one now, we, we've read that but we didn't spend time on it in our study in our series over here but a description from that vision that john has is taken every time just one specific description and given to a church that is uh, to a church what is most relevant to them so when you heard when you heard what we what he said to ephesus at that point in time you realize they were struggling with deeds and god says i am in your midst and i'm my presence is most critical i've got you in my hands let my presence be your comfort, not these deeds that are drawing you away from your love for me. And then last time when you looked at the words that were given to the other church, it was to him who is the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. To him who's, be, who's risen from the dead. So it doesn't matter if you stand faithful even to the point of death. Don't forget that I know what the end is. And at this point in time, the words are, I'm the one who holds this double-edged sword. In other words, don't fear the Roman sword. Do not fear what man can do to you. At best, they can kill your body, but they cannot touch your soul. And so the Lord actually is drawing their attention, not just to this double-edged sword that hung out over their necks, but he wanted to draw their attention to something that was even more significant. Because the greater threat was not Rome. Rome was just a tool in Satan's hands. And so he specifically uses the word over here when he refers to their city. I know, what does he know? I know something. I know where you live. It's where Satan has his throne. Remember the words, I know, I understand. I'm close. I walk among the lampstands. I'm near to you. And I know the kind of environment you are in. That Satan actually reigns over here. This was a culture that was shaped by the prince of the air. These people were living at a time where God says, you have remained true to my name. And so for those words... Yet you've remained true to my name. It tells us it must have been a really difficult environment. Now, we don't have insight through this text on why this was, why Satan had his throne over there and what the city was like. And so I want to quickly give us a few categories or a few critical places that were there in Pergamum. And you'd get a sense of why Satan lived over here and why it was his throne. The first one is they had a huge altar to Zeus. This was a Greek god, the supreme god of all creation. Uh, you've probably seen sculptures of a well-muscled man with a white beard. But he was, uh, he was the God of thunder, and he was several things. He was, he was right on top of the chain, and the altar that they had, that wasn't a temple, it was just an altar. It was massive. It was bigger than this hall. It was over 110 feet wide and long and 40 feet deep. And constantly, there was incense and worship that was offered at this altar. I was right on top of the city, and that overlooked the entire city. So you can imagine what, what, what first gripped your mind when you came there. And it wasn't just that. Not so far from that was another huge structure. This was a temple dedicated for imperial worship. So you could, as an emperor, you were given permission to build a temple so that people would worship you. And Pergamum had the first one. This was the oldest one. It was dedicated dedicated to Caesar Augustus. This was massive. And Caesar, he was somebody who truly was sold out on what the enemy offered us in Genesis 3. You can be like God. If you've read an inscription, he called himself the divine son of God. An inscription about Caesar goes like this. The divine son of God who brings good news of peace and prosperity to the entire world. Doesn't that sound familiar? The Evangelion according to Caesar, now that existed even before Jesus was born. The Evangelion, the good news according to Caesar, it's in that environment that Jesus comes and says, it's good news that I have for you, and I'm a king, but this is a different kingdom. So you can imagine the kind of outlook that was upon Christians at that point in time. And the whole city was full of cultic worship. You go a little further north and you see this temple dedicated to Athena. This was the goddess of victory and wisdom. So if you wanted to know anything about the way of life, then you had to go there and you had to worship her. So imagine the church had got letters, John's letters must, did its rounds in all of Asia. They had copies of it. And so when you read, I am the way, the truth, and the life, you had to denounce what everybody else in the city did. There was a library that was huge. It was the second largest in the world at that point in time after Alexandria. And so I guess those Christians in Pergamum in the church stopped going there. They stopped listening to what their neighbors did. There was no more Athena in their life. And then there was Dionysus. Now, this was the god of wine and arts and theater and parties. Must have been a pretty popular god, isn't it? And the myth was that he was killed and raised to life. Not sure what significance of that. I party forever, I guess. And then there was Demeter. So Demeter was the goddess of grain and agriculture. You had to worship her if you wanted to have your food going on in the city. And so, uh, but to enter, there was always a sacrifice. You could not enter her temple without the sprinkling of blood. That sounds familiar too. And then finally, you had the god of healing or the god of medicine called Asclepius. Now his symbol should be familiar to a lot of us. It's a staff with a snake that's wound around it. That's what the medical world uses even today. So this city then boasted of a massive medical center. It wasn't where doctors were serving, it was where priests were there. And the belief that they had, why they used a snake was, because every time a snake shed its skin, they thought it was renewing its health and it was sort of being born again. So it was a picture of uh, renewal, regeneration and rebirth. And so if anybody was sick, then you had the god of Aclepius, the god of medicine. And he was known as a great savior. Now, all of that sounds like a class in history, but I think that's critical because if you need to realize this place is flooded. It's just entrenched completely with Satan's ways. Cultic worship was all over this. And when you think of the spirit of the air that loomed over that city at that point in time, you keep all that in your mind and say, well, how different it, is it today? What about the place that I live in now? Because all these idols that they actually bowed down to, we know they had no power, you bow down to Zeus or to Athena. They didn't have any power. But who you were actually bowing down to was Satan himself. Anything that you believe in, anything that you devote your time to, anything that you pledge your allegiance to, anything where you place your trust outside of God is not some vague spirituality that looms in the air. It is simply to bow down to Satan himself. And so when you think of that and you say, okay, in our times today, we don't have mythology and animal sacrifices. None of that is going to fly. But Satan still reigns. He still orchestrates the culture that you and I live in. So then think with me of those categories that we just looked at. If you were living in Pergamum at that time, and suppose you had a child that fell critically sick, and there weren't many physicians at that point in time, especially Christian physicians. If Luke was around then you were in luck, you had a believing doctor. It's pretty rare nowadays. But you had... A whole lot of people, if your child is unwell, would put pressure on you saying, actually, there's been so many testimonies of healing. Come to this God of healing. Come to Asclepius. What would you do in a situation like that? That's the kind of environment that they were in. The church was a minority. And when you think of that and say, haven't you had anxious moments in your own life when you fall sick and you begin wondering whether some organ is actually going south, or whether this is some symptom of a heart attack, and you go to a doc, and he looks at you, and at the end of it, he passes his verdict, and he says, I've checked it all, you're fine. You feel a huge sigh of relief, isn't it? Where's that word of comfort coming from? Quite often from that report. Very rarely, even before we leave and we go there, are we comforted saying, I know whose hands I'm in, irrespective of the outcome. And there's something in us that causes us to feel a certain manner, and the reason is we live in a culture where science is exalted, where people are exalted, where the fear of life is huge. You live in a culture that, is, that doesn't know God's love. And when you don't know God's love, then there's no perfect love. So perfect fear is going to grip people. That's probably at the heart of why most people, there's a, there's a frenzy in, in how many health freaks there are, in how many beauty clinics keep rising up. Or the agony of balding heads and widening waistlines and wrinkling skin. Sure, it bothers some of us, but what's with the panic? At some point in time, we have to realize saying, if I don't see, if I don't realize that my glory on this side is fading away, but it's paving way to something that's even more beautiful then I've lost sight of what's going on over here. But when your culture that you live in is so soaked in sin And self-salvation will thrive. And they will ride on the fear of men. And that's why the medical world is exorbitant today. And so irrespective, you might have the best insurance policies, you might have access to the best medical facilities, you might have signed up for a lot of that. But if that's where you and I place our trust, then in some way we will be bowing down actually to the God of healing, the God of medicine, like they did over there. Now, I'm not remotely discounting the, the blessing in the medical world. When I myself am on, have been on medicines last week. But, and, and the doctors are to us. But I want us to see that in a culture where the spirit of the air reigns, there is constantly an invitation in subtle ways to place our trust outside of God. And that's the challenge. That's the call to faithfulness. You don't have, for example, the goddess of Athena today. But when you think about how, still, how life still goes on, Where do we draw our wisdom from? In the church of Pergamum, they had two choices. It was either the goddess of wisdom that the whole city worshiped, and there was a massive library, there's lots of knowledge that you can gain over there, or it was Jesus. And you can imagine how ridiculed they must have been. And it isn't too different for us, isn't it? It's either Satan's wisdom or it's God's wisdom. We know that so clearly from James 3. Go look at 13 to 16 and you'll see the two kinds of wisdom, there's only two. Which one flows through your veins? One is demonic and one is from above, from God himself. And so you ask yourself saying, well, what's it been for me? All my life I've been taught to slog and to live a certain way and saying that's how life's going to be. You've got to secure your future. You've got to be somebody. If not, you're going to be useless. And at some point as you grow up, you realize that's so, that's so normal. That's how everybody lives. And the word of God contradicts a lot of that saying, but hang on, if you want to make a name for yourself and there's no place in the kingdom, if you want to be the least, then you can be the greatest. Now we know all those verses. I'm not getting into any of those, but the question I really want us to think of is which wisdom still shapes the direction of our hearts today? Have you already decided, for example, where you're going to retire and which part of the world you're going to be in? Is that based on the most comfortable place you think you can wind up in? Or have you asked the Lord saying, where can I labor for you? How can I be spent for you? Or What's your greatest desire for your children? What's going to happen with all the savings and the plans and all the effort for all these years? Is it all decided moving the direction of kingdom first? Or is it about me and how my life will end? You see, the wisdom that this church was called to in their city was foolishness. You can imagine what their wisdom was, isn't it? They said, we believe in this man, Jesus Christ. Just a few decades before they got this letter, the Romans themselves had crucified him and put him to death. And Christ crucified was what they thought was wisdom. And we know that is foolishness in the eyes of the world. The message of the cross is foolishness in the eyes of the world. And you have to ask yourself saying, what about the church today? Is the message of the cross foolishness? Or do I have some version of Athena in my own mind even now? Is Satan stopping me from pursuing this wisdom? We know applications that flow from the message of the cross. We know, for example, it's more blessed to give than to receive. But most people still give from their comfort. We know we've got to be the least. But then that doesn't sit well with your workplace environment. You've got to project yourself, so show yourself in a certain manner, look a certain way, present certain skills, draw attention. If not, you're going to be useless. And all of those choices actually at some point feel almost like cultural choices. These are cultural things. That's what everybody does. That's the argument in most homes, isn't it? You can say, don't seek man's honor, but those things in terms of what people drive and how they dress up and where they live and what lifestyle should be like, that's not sin. That's what the culture decides. Either you can look at it in that manner or you can read scripture and realize is Satan actually beginning to build his throne. We don't have a gigantic altar like Zeus. I looked at that and I said, we don't have any visible altar like this today, Lord. But most people have their sacrifices that they're offering and most of them, actually at the altar of Satan. We refer to a whole lot of things, but in reality we're trapped in some sort of a web spun with lies by the father of lies, by the deceiver of men, by the destroyer of men. And you generalize all of that into into category and you call it busyness. It's really not because when you go and peel what lies beneath that busy life, you can see several idols that are stashed up. And everything that you actually devote your time and your money to actually is a way of bowing down to Satan. You don't have the goddess of agriculture or food anymore. But how many Christians truly, like they did at Pergamum today, would honor the warning in John 6, 27? Do not work for bread that spoils. When you ask yourself how your time is spent, you don't have Dionysus, the god of theater, art, and entertainment. We don't have that anymore. You know, in in those days what they would do in theater, it shaped your culture significantly. So you would bring anything that was uncommon at that point in time into your theater and present it there, and then it was accepted as a norm. That's pretty much what happens today, isn't it? We don't have, we're not limited to physical theaters, but if you have a whole lot of virtual platforms and everything that is uncommon is constantly introduced, anything new will fly and that becomes a trend. You can think of several examples. You can think of how classy footwear at some point in time had to be expensive leather and that went away and then came sneakers and branded shoes and several colors And when all those brands started competing there was nothing to differentiate I think about 30 years back then laces started going fluorescent to differentiate shoes from one another and at some point they said that looks ridiculous and they went a whole circle now actually I can see people wear what kids used to wear in the 80s when they went to school for PE classes for physical education white shoes that's the fashion. Mm -hmm. Now the problem is not fashion and I'm not saying what happened in the 70s is better than now but The move, Satan is not interested in just changes. He's interested in constantly presenting something that might look like a move that's forward, but is constantly drawing you and sliding you down the road to to ruin. That is why when you think of fashion statements when it comes to clothes, the problem is you get to a point where you don't even know. Is there a reference point to what is compromised anymore? Who can define what modesty and shame is when it comes to clothing? We don't have a reference point anymore, isn't it? Well, that's what everybody wears. That's the argument usually in every house. I really dread coming to First Peter 3 when it comes to how we must rest and what modesty should be like. I'll give you a heads up if you don't want to come that day. Music genres aren't the issue. But I looked at, you look at a whole lot of music. It's the artists that are promoting narcissism and lust to the point where the latest Grammy actually had satanic music. And only a few people were put off by it. There's coming a time where that won't happen. When I read those words, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, it doesn't sound like Pergamum anymore, isn't it? The church at Pergamum was commended because they held firmly to Jesus' name. You had to either accept Caesar as Lord or accept Jesus Christ as Lord. And if you didn't, quite often you'd be dealt with like how Antipas was. You saw that in verse 13, a faithful witness, and he was killed. We don't have too much detail, but history records for us that he was against idolatry. And they had this huge bronze bull in which they sacrificed animals. They put him in it, and they cooked him alive. And he was burned to death. That's the environment in which they did not renounce their faith in Jesus. You can imagine the mob frenzy at that time you can imagine the whole government rallying the crowds at that point in time and you're a minority and your pastor just got burned alive in that environment you had to say I still will not bow down to Caesar and I believe in Christ and compare your version of persecution today when the church was faithful at that point in time something happened through the back doors something slipped in and you see that in verse 14 and 15 while they, while they were faithful A few people who held on to the teaching of Balaam and some to the teaching of Nicolaitans, these groups began infiltrating the church and there were some people now who started adapting that teaching. Now you recall how God had prevented Balaam from cursing Israel and he found subtle ways to go around Balak and he got Moabite women to seduce those people into sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols. You don't have have an ethnic group like Moabite men today around. But skimpy dressing that shows off vital statistics, that's the norm in every city, isn't it? You don't have maybe food sacrificed as as idol, specifically as your greatest struggle, but you remember the category, the early church, early Christians who came from paganism always struggled with this. And Christians today who truly haven't converted to Christianity still struggle with this. Because when the church of Corinth had this problem and Paul wrote to them, his problem was not specifically food. His problem was that there's a certain social context, there's a certain identity that you carry and who you belong to and what you participate in that determines whether you sin or not. How can you participate in the cup of demons? Not just food in any category, entertainment, whatever else that you want to think of. And the other warning to them in that category was, consider your weaker brother, which is something that we so often forget, isn't it? We forget that when we make choices, we can cause others to sin. That we need to ask the Lord on whether this is acceptable. And we need to ask the Lord for wisdom on what is most wise. I can afford it. I'll go ahead with it. That's not from the Bible. I won't get drunk, so I'll hold my bottle up. That's not from the Bible. Those are ways in which you can argue because it's an individualistic culture outside that speaks like that. But this is a reminder again for us. Notice in 2.16 after that, he says, repent therefore. And it's very interesting because when you look at those words there, he's previously said there are some among you who've accepted the teaching. That's false. But the call to repentance is for the entire church. That's interesting, isn't it? Because we keep forgetting that this is not some social gig when we gather over here. This is the body of Christ. And when there's sin in the camp, each one of us are accountable for it and have a natural response to that. And so when you see some of them in Pergamum who are not influenced, still are called to repent. And you ask yourself, saying, Lord, am I a consumer over here? Do I just fix my sin and walk on? Or do I sometimes sound like Cain? Well, that's the other person's problem. Am I my brother's keeper? Let me remind you of Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Do you know anyone who is struggling with Moabite women or the equivalent? You need to walk alongside. You need to point to grace. If you don't know anybody, then you're living in La La Land. You're just unplugged from reality. Christians in churches constantly struggle and constantly confess when there's an avenue. There's somebody that they can trust about their addiction to pornography. About 10 years back, I remember sitting with a a mother and her girl who was barely in grade 5. And we were sitting and wondering how to respond to a child who was constantly describing all the explicit porn that was revealed in her classroom, that all kids were discussing at that point in time. You know, years back, you'd had goosebumps, you know, two decades back, if one of your friends actually got to go on a date. It was like a rare thing. It was an achievement. It was a bit taboo as well. You didn't speak about it. But today, it's pretty different. If you get an invitation actually from somebody else in university saying, can you come with me for a movie? If you don't know that actually means I want to get physically intimate with you, then you're behind times. Now, those are conversations with university students and my goal is not to educate you, but my goal is to update you on the reality around. And if we're not aware of the strong current that flows around us, it will keep flowing in through the walls of the church. And the call there is for the entire church to repent to redraw our boundary lines in our hearts, in our homes, and widen that wouldn't the circle over here. I just want to remind you, when you think of the word repent, there are two ways to think of it. The Greek says, actually, is to bring a change in your mind. And the Hebrew goes on to say to redirect your path, to change your path, to get back on the right path. That's interesting because quite often, when you're walking in a certain direction and you go off, Typically, what most Christians do is, I'm sorry, Lord, they confess, and they move on. They really haven't come back. They really haven't done anything about it. That is confession. That's not repentance. It's confession at best. But to say, I can see my sin, and I know what your word expects of me, and to get back on the track, that is the invitation over here, that the church in Pergamum, and we are called to this morning. Notice the warning in verse 16. I will come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You notice the words, "a sword of my mouth, and even in chapter 1, you see this in verse 16, saying, it's a double-edged sword that God, that John sees in the mouth of Christ. And we have the same words, a double-edged sword. What is this double-edged sword? Interestingly, if you heard the prayer of confession, you might have, you might have, would have picked it up. Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, dividing between soul and spirit, bone and join. And have you heard it said, it reveals all our inner thoughts and our attitudes and it lays it bare before God, before whom we must give account one day. It is that word. You see, it's a double-edged sword because in one sense, it can do two things and it depends on which side of the sword you wanna fall on. On one side, you constantly keep hearing God's word and you don't respond despite the conviction. And at one day, it'll get you to a point where you'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. God's word will bring judgment upon us. But we want to be on the other side where we keep listening and saying, what should I do, Lord? Our hearts are cut. How should I respond? And the word itself will point us to what we need to do. How do I overcome this, this cultural influence in my heart? And how can, I, how can I stop looking at these as mere cultural choices for me and my family, and that actually a spirit of the air is deceiving me? And God says, "We can press on. And there's a way in which He goes on to tell us, "I will come soon." The same word says, "I will come soon." Now these are not promises. Uh, all the verses like this are not referring specifically to the end times when Jesus about his second coming. When he says, I will come soon, this can also be understood as one who walks among them saying, if you do not repent, just like he said, I will remove my lampstand. I will come and intervene in the life of the church. But our desire is not that. We're so grateful for what God has done. And our desire is verse 13, isn't it? We want to hear those same words. Yet you remained true to my name. Yet you remain true to my name. In the church of Pergamum, there was a clear differentiator on how you remain true to his name. You say yes to Jesus and no to Caesar. But for us, we don't seem to have any difficult or clear categories like that. You get away quite often, isn't it, in your, in your circles at work and with your friends saying, there's a God who loves you, I can pray for you, and we keep it as generic as we can. I'm not sure what you've achieved if people know you're a man of integrity and you care for them if they don't know the name of Jesus Christ who saved you and who belonged, you belong to That's the person who's sending you. Now, yes, it's going to be increasingly difficult when you specifically stand for his name. We know the consequences, that's our problem. We still, the double-edged sword in Rome hung over their necks, and for us, we have similar consequences. Will I lose my job? If I share the reason for my hope, will I lose my friends? Will I be ridiculed? And it's only going to get worse that the church definitely, if you truly will stop compromising with your culture, will be looked down upon. There's going to be incredible pressure, whether it's at school for your children, because you'll have to sign off at a a curriculum pretty soon that is going to accept godlessness. At your workplaces, you're going to have to sign off, not just saying, I accept gender equality and everything else that's there on that wide spectrum and sexuality, but you almost need to be an ally. You need to be on their side. You need to affirm it. It's coming a time where this is going to look pretty different. How will you survive as a stranger? How will you survive as a minority? And he goes on to remind us of a promise over there. There's two short promises. Look at verse 17. I will give some of the hidden manna. Now we know manna was this unique bread that fell from heaven, specifically was given to Israel during their journey when they went on to the promised land. When you think of that and you keep that in mind and you say, okay, when I read, where am I in this journey, Lord? In the book of Revelation, the church is a time where Jesus ascended and will return. And as we journey and we pressed on looking to the Lord, we're reminded of what Moses reminded the Israelites about, that the manna pointed to something beyond itself. The purpose was something else. And let me remind you about that from Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. I'll read this for you. He humbled you and caused you to hunger and fed you with manna which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, God intentionally drew them to the wilderness. God intentionally put them in a difficult place and caused them to feel hungry and then fed them with strange food they never knew about. Teaching them something, don't take this in your hands. But trust me, and my word will sustain you. And that's the same message for us now. That's the same word of encouragement. And even when we press on as a church, it'll feel like a wilderness. You'll feel like a contra-culture. You'll feel like you're like a fish out of water. It's going to happen in all your social circles pretty soon. But when you do that, and you say, I will not compromise, God says, trust me, what you truly need for your sustenance will be given. Because we know what the bread is pointing to, isn't it? That's how Christ purchased His church. He is the bread of life. He gave Himself sacrificially for us. And so God says, I know your greatest need. I will feed you. I will sustain you. And then He says, will also, you will also receive a white stone. Now that points to the climax that's actually at the end of the church's pilgrimage. Why? Because in ancient times, white stones were used for a variety of purposes. So for example... It was given as an honorable discharge after gladiatorial combat. Or it was given to you as an invitation for very special, unique events. But here, it bears much greater significance. When you look at the verse, it says, it's a name, a secret shared between the Lord and the person who's receiving it. Almost like a new name. Abraham, I'll call you Abraham. Jacob, I'll call you Israel. Simon, I'll call you Peter. All those examples referring to A new identity that will be produced by by, by the grace and power of God's love. And God's saying, that's what I have for you. If you hold fast to my name, he says, I will mark you as my property. And there's a name, an identity that you will cherish, and I'll fit you into my perfection. Remain steadfast. You see, those two things are critical for us. Knowing where I belong, knowing what sustains me and knowing my identity, because that's the temptation. You take everything that culture offers you, and if you hold on to these promises, you'll be able to ward it off. Your life might seem radically different when you don't compromise. Let me read an excerpt before we close from a life of a woman who loved the Lord. I hope it encourages many of you who succumb so quickly to life's worries and to Satan's web of busyness. It's the biggest problem today, isn't it? You know her and you'll pick up who her name is as we go through this quickly. It's a daily schedule of a woman. She had 19 children, of which 10 made it to adulthood. When a child turned 5, she started education, girls and boys alike. Six days a week, the children had class at home, from 9 to 12, and then from 2 to 5. Apart from her teaching children, she spent 2 hours every day in prayer. One hour was dedicated to the prayer for her children, and the other hour for her personal faith where she studied the Bible and she journaled. That's two hours every day. As if she didn't have a full homeschool schedule and her household to attend to. Every evening she took one of her children aside to talk about matters of their heart. They could ask her questions concerning their faith and share thoughts with her. She listened to them and counseled them through whatever they were dealing with. She was battling chronic sickness all her life On top of that, her marriage was a misery and her husband was always in debt. So if you thought she had many maids, none of that. The family struggled to survive, not to mention she gave birth to a new child almost every year, which means she had to deal with pregnancy and postpartum hormones daily. Against all odds, Susanna Wesley, I'm sure you're familiar with her, you must have picked it up by now. She found strength and determination in God to give all she's got for her children. She described her approach to many adversaries with a simple prayer. Help help me, O Lord, to make a true use of all my disappointments and calamities in this life in such ways that they may unite my heart more closely with thee. (laughs) Cause them to separate my affections from worldly things and inspire my soul with more vigor in the pursuit of your happiness. Now I'm not going through some incredible trials, but I can think of a whole lot of people who succumb to this and who miss what she enjoyed. The blood of life sustained her. Her identity was not a woman filled with hopelessness, but she pressed on because she knew she had a special identity, she knew her father, she knew who she belonged to. She wasn't a parent to succumb to what the world thought was best for her children, which is what most of us as parents succumb to, isn't it? The two of her products were John Wesley and Charles Wesley. If you know those names, you know how significant they were in contributing to work in the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, listen to Christ our Savior Read that text and say, he's the one who holds the double-edged sword. His word is true. His unchanging word, like you heard in the prayer of confession, can sever every knot, every tie that the enemy keeps binding to your heart. It can draw us to Freedom. So many of us are still victims of unworthiness deep in our hearts. Still trying to find significance because so many relationships and over time there's been so much has been etched in our minds. That's a lie of Satan. You're desperately trying to find significance in what you do and what you own. But the gospel reminds us that none of that is true. That you've been purchased and you were loved when you did not deserve it. And he cannot love you to any greater extent than he already does. So remember this and ask God to stir a heart of faithfulness, not to compromise. Even as you sing this song, reminding you that your worth is not in what you own, not in skill, not in name. When fame, youth, and beauty hurry by, you can still look to eternity and say, My Redeemer is my greatest treasure. He is the wellspring of my soul.
0: We hope you were encouraged by today's sermon. Please visit our website, cc-dubai.com, for more information on Center Church Dubai. If you know someone who will be blessed by this sermon, please share this podcast link so they can stay updated.